Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Hi, this is Keith Arzeda, and welcome back to our next installment of Distressed Situations. I'm here with Sam Hegel of Turnaround Professionals in Oklahoma City. Sam is a career insolvency expert, turnaround professional. He's been a CEO of companies. He's been a receiver and an advisor to companies in distressed situations, and we are very grateful for him being here today. Glad to be with you again. And so today we are going to talk about pre-bankruptcy issues and the dreaded preference. So I have to tell you, Sam, that if bankruptcy was a horror film, I think the preference would be an excellent specter or bad guy. My favorite horror film is The Exorcist. And so the preference, in my opinion, is definitely similar to The Demon. How about you? You know, the crazy thing about The Demon I find it as equally hard to explain to the creditor as I do to the debtor. You know, the debtor files and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've been doing everything I can for these guys. And now you tell me I've got to go tell them they've got to give the money back. Are you kidding me? It is a two-headed demon. No, no question, Sam. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to level set us real quick so everybody knows who the demon is. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit more in depth. So the preference, or the demon as we're calling it, has been around since the original Bankruptcy Act of 1841. It was modified in 1898 and again most recently in the 1978 Bankruptcy Code. What the preference really does is it allows debtors that have filed bankruptcy to recover money that they paid to creditors in the 90 days prior to the bankruptcy case. And there are some elements that need to be met. We're going to come to those here in a minute. But the whole goal here, according to the statute, and I'm just telling you what the policy of the statute is, not expressing an agreement or disagreement, because depending on what side of the equation you are on, you may have a different opinion. But the whole goal is to return to the debtor's bankruptcy estate payments that were made in the 90 days before bankruptcy so that all creditors can share and share alike. And Sam, I'm going to ask you, has that been your experience? No, it hasn't. What I have found mostly is that this thing doesn't actually rear its ugly head until the wheels are coming off. That is, you know, the debtor thinks they've got a plan, they're going to make it happen, and then it doesn't. And the next thing you know, that maybe you can't meet the bills that you promised to pay inside of bankruptcy. And somebody, financial advisor, lawyer says, hey, you know what? We can go after these guys that got money before the bankruptcy and use that to fund our process. And so the interesting thing about the preference is that it doesn't exist outside of the bankruptcy process. So this is a a claim. And and essentially, just so everybody understands we're on the same page, the preference is actually a lawsuit that's brought by the bankruptcy estate. And so, Sam, we had talked a little bit about this before this podcast. That estate and the 
the actual person bringing that claim can be different. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you, the first time you go to these bankruptcies and stuff, you hear a lawyer stand up and say, they're the representative for the debtor and the debtor in possession. And it creates this, I'll stick with your demon metaphor, it creates this two-headed monster. Who's the debtor? Who's the debtor in possession? And the debtor in possession under the code is kind of like the trustee, right? And so they've got this duty to do these things that frustrates them. They're like, well, I made a deal with this creditor. And now all of a sudden you're telling me that as a trustee, a debtor in possession, I've got to go in and try to unwind that. And why do I have to do that? And the policy is you have to do that so that all of your creditors can share alike. And the idea is that within 90 days of bankruptcy, there are some creditors that can exert more power over a struggling company than others. And those companies should not be rewarded. It's one of the few times that I've found in business where being active and aggressive and doing a good job and collecting your bills is, is not actually rewarded. And it creates the very real circumstance and has done this for many of my clients over the last 25 years where I've had clients that do a good job of collecting from a insolvent company only to find out that they have to give some of that money back. It's a very frustrating experience, hence the demon analogy. Let me talk a little bit about the actual elements of a preference. And so we're going to talk about a recent amendment to the bankruptcy code. I said that the preference statute was enacted in 1978, and it was, but there was a recent amendment in 2020 that I think will be interesting to hear about. But the basic elements for a preference are a transfer for or on account of antecedent debt. So the, the transfer that we're talking about is usually the payment of money. It can be the transfer of assets, but generally in a preference scenario, it's the payment of money on account of past debt. It's made at a time when the debtor is insolvent and insolvency is presumed under the preference statute. So that's a rebuttable presumption. Something, Sam, I'm sure we could talk about ad nauseum and probably fill up three podcasts, but we're going to skip that. The payments needs to be made within 90 days prior to the bankruptcy case. So you're looking at the 90 days before a bankruptcy, unless it's an insider, which is a statutory definition and generally is thought to be control parties, directors, officers, people in control of the debtor. And it must be, this transfer must be such that the creditor receives more than it would in a hypothetical liquidation. Those are the basic elements of a preference. Sam, you want to talk about the analysis that you do and looking at whether or not a particular transfer is a preference? So defenses. The biggies are that, hey, look, I was just doing what I'd been doing with these guys all along. And so if you'd always been net 30, and the payments that you got inside that 90-day window were basically within 30 days of your invoice, you're golden. You know, and I saw this in a, a food company. The terms were net seven because the stuff was perishable. Well, that's great. If you're getting paid every seven days and that's what you were doing with the company before, that's fine. Kind of following on that, if that's what everybody else is doing, if the industry says, well, it's perishable goods, it's seven days, you've probably got a pretty solid defense. And 
you know, it's kind of circling back. The presumption is that you're guilty. Isn't that right? Yeah. So this is a very important point. And I'm going to put some legal jargon around what you're talking about there, Sam. What Sam is describing is one of the two primary defenses to a preference. There's seven enumerated in the statute. We're only going to talk about two today. But this is whether or not a transfer is in the ordinary course of business. And we look at that transfer from two angles, like Sam said. We look at it from what's called the vertical test. Is this an ordinary transfer between these two parties, the debtor and the creditor? So if they're on net seven terms and the creditor says, nope, it needs to be cash on delivery, or the the debtor starts paying on delayed terms, those are facts that would suggest this was not in the ordinary course of business. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. And then you look in the industry generally. If people are always paying net 30, and by people, I mean other similarly situated businesses, and in our case, the terms are net 90, that's an indication that it's not in the ordinary course of business. And so either one of those can act as a defense, but that is one of the large defenses. But circling back to Sam's point, Sam, you're right. The burden of proof for defending against a preference in the ordinary course of business is on the defendant. So this means the creditor has to prove the elements of the ordinary course of business defense. Now, the other defense that is frequently brought up is the new value defense. Consistent with the ordinary course defense, the reason for these defenses are creditors that do not change their position in the 90-day period, meaning they, their, their net position as it relates to the debtor does not get better or worse, should not be treated as having received a preference. So if you have dealt with the debtor in the ordinary course of business, your preference exposure, the amount of preference you have received, is the same throughout the 90-day period, and therefore you should have a defense. The same is true with what's called subsequent new value. Easiest way to think about this is the debtor makes a payment on the 90th day before the petition of $100. Then on the 89th day, the creditor delivers $70 worth of goods. Nothing else happens. You have a preference payment of $100. That day, that payment on the 90th day before the petition was a preference. It was $100. But then the creditor provided $70 of new value inside of that preference window. So the net preference is $30. All kinds of permutations there, but the point is not to penalize the creditor whose position vis-a-vis the debtor actually got worse by the delivery of new value. Does that make sense, Sam? Yeah, you know, the crazy thing, it's not quite as simple as that. You know, I've had clients that said, "Well, 90 days out, they owed me $100 and now they owe me $120, so I've got $20 of worth of new value, right? Mm, Not exactly. You've got to look at what was shipped during that period. Just a simple increase in your exposure to the company doesn't automatically get you the new value calculation. It's one of those things you hate to tell a a client in that it's complicated. And so... You don't think we can solve all the world's problems in 20 minutes here, Sam? I don't. And I just, you know, it, you hate telling somebody, well, it's complicated. And so they go, well, what does that mean? Well, I've got to dig through their records, through somebody else's records, and we'll come up with a potential defense. Can we and, agree that the policy of these defenses, though, is to make sure creditors that 
have not been materially benefited by payments in the 90 days should be protected? Absolutely. The goal of the policy and the statute is to level the playing field. And, you know, people get that eventually. It's just a little hard, you know, because, you know, if you're advising a creditor, they've been going round and round with this company for a long time and they've had, they've hated it. They've made a deal. They finally gotten there and they're working through their own troubles and the company files bankruptcy. And the next thing you know, somebody's telling them, yeah, really impressive that you made this great deal. Now you got to give the money back. So with the few minutes remaining that we have, I want to talk about some new legislation. I said that the Bankruptcy code was passed in 1978, and it was the preference statute was made uh, was further codified at that time. But in August of 2019, uh, the president, then President Trump, signed the Small Business Reorganization Act, and that had several different changes that were made to the Chapter 11 practice. That went into effect on February 19th, and one thing that was added and tucked into that statute was some language that has the potential to truly change the way preferences are handled. And that language is, previously it said, the trustee may avoid a transfer or an interest to the debtor in property that meets several conditions. The added language says the trustee may, and here's the added language, based on reasonable due diligence in the circumstances of the case and taking into account a party's known or reasonably knowable affirmative defenses avoid any transfers. It's unknown at this time what reasonable due diligence is going to amount to, and we're going to see case authority developed around this. But the bottom line is, is previous to this enactment, preferences were really treated as an ordinary course event by most trustees, where they would send a demand letter to everyone who received a payment in the 90 days and seek a recovery from everybody so that they can all share and share alike. This is going to create a very interesting scenario where I think courts are going to have to struggle with what is that reasonable diligence? What do these circumstances of the case mean? Can we shift the burden to the trustee? And what happens if the trustee doesn't commence that diligence? What if the trustee doesn't exercise reasonable due diligence? Can the case be dismissed? So I'd be interested in your thoughts, Sam, on what you think this might do to you and your role as a business person that sometimes is looking at these types of transfers. Interesting point about the the new burdens put on by the Small Business Restructuring Act. I don't know where it's going to go. It certainly feels like that if I'm a trustee in that case or advising that person it seems like you really can't bring that case unless you feel strongly that you are going to prevail. I totally agree with you, Sam. It does beg the question, why was this included in the statute, right? And that question is, weren't trustees exercising reasonable diligence before? I don't feel like there's been any abuse of this particular part of the code. As we alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, if anything, there's been a real desire to ignore the obligations of this part of the code. 
you're a debtor in possession and trying to reorganize and you think that you're going to come out the other end of this process, what good does it do you to antagonize your pre-petition creditors by trying to claw money back from them in the interest of leveling the playing field with the other parties? So I don't know what Congress was thinking when they did this, but we'll find out. I've scratched my head over that uh, as well. And Sam, I I don't want to underplay the point that you just raised, which is many debtors, especially operating companies that are restructuring, will need the very creditors that received preferences to support them in the future and their reorganization and recovery. So many times there is an opportunity to settle preferences under a plan and or waive those claims in order to grease the skids, so to speak, when dealing with an unsecured creditors committee. Honestly, we appreciate everyone's time. We hope to see you next time on Distressed Situations. And Sam, sincerely, thank you very much for being with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.